Hello everybody and welcome to episode number two of the MDS Foundation Professional Report. Today we are going to cover several recent publications which are very relevant to our professional audience. First, we will start with a report published in the December issue of Blood entitled Outcomes of Patients with Hematologic Malignancies and COVID-19, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of 3377 Patients. This report was written by a group of international colleagues led by Dr. Vigentira from Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. We have been flooded with information about COVID, including patients with hematological neoplasms and COVID. But still, there are more questions than answers, and still we do not have enough information. Here, they wanted to test and to ask the question about the outcomes of such patients with hematologic malignancies who are infected by COVID-19 and are hospitalized in several medical centers. Their outcomes is still unclear. So what they did, this international group, they did a systematic review and meta-analysis to estimate the risk of death and other important outcomes in these patients. As I said, the main point, or the, the primary outcome was indeed mortality of these patients. What they did basically, they searched the literature and identified reports dealing with patients having both hematological neoplasms, all kinds of neoplasms, and infected by COVID-19. And the primary endpoints, as mentioned, was mortality. Other endpoints were the risk to be transferred to intensive care, as well as the chances to being ventilated. They also did subgroup analysis stratified by, they stratified the mortality by age, by treatment status, and by malignancy subtypes. The results were very interesting and important for us as well as for our patients. In total, they found 34 studies or reports dealing with adults and another five reports dealing with pediatric population, totally almost 3,500 patients, uh, more accurate, 3,377. The main results of the report is that the mortality was 34%, which means that one out of three hospitalized patients died. They found that age was a very important factor, not surprisingly, and patients who are older than 60 had higher risk of death with a relative risk of 1.82. Children, in fact, were responsible for about 4% of deaths only. Patients with on active anti-cancer treatment had a very similar mortality to patients who were not on, on anti-cancer treatment, which is a very important finding which we will discuss in a minute as well. Other interesting results which I would like to mention, 21% of the patients required transfer to intensive care and 17% of the patients 
needed mechanical ventilation. Non-whites had higher mortality than whites. Although patients with bone marrow failure in this particular report, and we are dealing with mainly with MDS, this subpopulation comprised only 7% of all the patients. However, the risk of death in these patients was higher than other patients without bone marrow failure. This is something that we should keep in mind. In conclusions, we can say that adult patients with hematological malignancies and COVID-19, especially hospitalized patients, have a very high risk of dying, 34% in this meta-analysis. Older patients here older than 60 have higher mortality rate, and children are relatively spared. Active cancer treatment does not appear to significantly increase the risk of death, so the conclusion, the practical conclusion is that there is no reason to withhold treatment for patients who need it for their hematological neoplasm, a very important practical conclusion. As Dr. Mikhail Sekeres, now in Miami, who writes the commentary, emphasizes what we probably already know is that hematological patients with their impaired immunity, and they are often more compromised by the treatment, these patients are more, more vulnerable and susceptible than other people. Mikhail Sekeres believed that these data provide us evidence for professional discussions as well as discussions with our patients. He calls for caution in the interpretation of the data since the analysis evaluated hospitalized patients and it is possible that patients in the community are less sick and their mortality rate might be lower. This means that we still have to be careful while waiting for more information. Finally, Dr. Sekeris concludes that this report convinces us not to withhold treatment from hematology patients who need it only because of the COVID. I suppose that we will see in the near future more information, but for the present time, it will be important to remember the high mortality rate as well as the sparing of children. And finally, there is no reason to withhold anti-hematological treatment to our patients just because they have been infected with COVID. Our next topic is entitled Luspatercept in patients with lower risk myelodysplastic syndromes. This is a report published in about a year from now in the New England Journal of Medicine and was also presented, I believe, in ASH 2019. It is a report by a group of inter international investigators led by Pierre Fenou from France, Uwe Platzbacher from Germany, Alan List from the US, and others. This is the medalist trial, which maybe many of you have already heard about. We know that patients with low-risk MDS suffer from anemia. Most of them have significant anemia, which is associated with reduced quality of life. Treating the anemia and improving the quality of life of these patients remain the primary goal of treatment. Red blood cell transfusions remain the first line and mostly administered treatment around the world. 
Erythroid Stimulating Agents, Erythropoietins, are the standard first-line agents prescribed to these low-risk MDS patients with symptomatic anemia. However, the response rate of ESAs is about 50%, maybe a little bit more, and the duration is about two years. That means that about half of these patients do not benefit from ESAs, and the other half lose their response over time. Thus, while red blood cell transfusions remain the backbone therapy, there is still an unmet need for additional agents to treat the anemia of these patients with low-risk MDS. Lenalidomide was approved in many countries for the patients who also have DEL5Q, and they compromise only a small fraction of these MDS patients. Lospatercept, an activin receptor-derived agent, has been recently approved, and we would like to discuss today the Medalist trial, which was the pivotal trial that led to this approval. As mentioned, Lospatercept is an activin receptor-derived agent, a recombinant fusion protein that binds transforming growth factor beta-superfamily ligands to reduce SMAD2 and SMAD3 signaling. Thus, Lospatercept stimulates erythropoiesis in the late stages. This agent showed promising results in phase one and phase two trials. The medalist trial was a double-blind placebo-controlled phase three that randomly assigned patients with lower risk classifications according to the IPSSR, which included very low, low risk, and intermediate risk patients with ring sideroblasts who were red blood cell transfusion dependent. Treatment with Lospatercept was in the dose of 1 up to 1.75 mg per kilogram body weight as a sub-Q injection once every three weeks, and patients were randomized 2 to 1. The primary endpoint was transfusion independence for 8 weeks or longer during weeks number 1 to 24 of the trial. Secondary endpoints included being transfusion independent for 12 weeks or longer than that, assessing both weeks from week number 1 to number 24 or from week 1 to number 48. And here are the results. In total, 229 patients were enrolled. As we said, the randomization was 2 to 1, so 153 patients were assigned and were evaluated for the Luspatercept and 76 patients in the placebo group. The baseline characteristics of the patients were balanced. The main result was that transfusion independence for 8 weeks or longer was observed in about 38% of the patients in the Luspatercept group as compared with only 13% of those who received placebo, and this was very significant statistically. Higher percentage of patients in the Luspatercept arm compared with the placebo met the key secondary point, which was 28% 
compared with only 8% in the placebo between the weeks 1-24, and 33% in the placebo compared with only 12% met the criteria, the endpoint in the weeks 1-48, again statistically significant. The most common Luspatercept-associated adverse events of any grade included fatigue, diarrhea, asthenia, nausea, and dizziness. The incidence of adverse effects de- decreased over time. So, in conclusion, Luspatercept re- reduced the severity of anemia in red blood cell transfusion-dependent patients with low-risk MDS and ring sideroblast. These patients were all refractory to erythropoietin-stimulating agents. Thus, fortunately, we can offer our patients another or additional effective therapeutic option in addition to what we already have, which is a very nice step forward. I believe my personal Uh, belief is that in the future we can combine and we can have a cocktail of both erythropoietin and agents such as losparterset because they act in separate steps of erythropoiesis. But obviously, this has not been shown yet. So the bottom line is we can offer our patients losparterset as another agent for treating their anemia in low-risk MDS patients. Our next topic is a study presented in last ASH 2020, abstract number 1277, in session 337, presented by David Henry on behalf of uh, international investigators and a personal disclosure. I am also one of the co-authors. The title of this presentation, Oral Ruxadostat, demonstrates efficacy in anemia secondary to lower-risk myelodysplastic syndromes irrespective of ring sideroblast and baseline erythropoietin level. As a background, I will remind our listeners that patients with low-risk MDS suffer from anemia, which is associated with reduced quality of life. And we are trying to treat this anemia to increase the hemoglobin, to reduce the transfusion requirements, and to improve the quality of life. Red blood cell transfusions remain the first line of treatment, and erythropoietin-stimulating agents or erythropoietin continue to be the first-line agents that are often prescribed in most countries for these patients with low-risk MDS and anemia. However, unfortunately, the response rate is not higher than 50%, and most of these patients lose their response over time, usually in about two years. That means that almost everybody of these patients will be a candidate and will need additional agents to treat their anemia. Lenalidomide is a possibility for those with DEL5Q, but unfortunately, these patients comprise only a small subset of these patients. Recently, and today also, we mentioned Luspatercept, an active in receptor-derived agent, which has been recently approved in many countries for these patients as well. I will also mention an agent which is called imetelstat, a telomerase inhibitor, but this is still 
under investigation and has not been approved. And now I would like to describe a study with Roxadostat, which is still under investigation. Roxadostat is an oral hypoxia-inducible factor, HIF, prolyl hydroxylase inhibitor that stimulates erythropoiesis and regulates ion metabolism. In phase three trials with patients with anemia related to kidney disease, Roxadostat increased their hemoglobin, reduced the transfusion needs, and improved quality of life. And thus, it was reasonable to try to use Roxadostat in patients with MDS and low risk and anemia. Here in this study, led by Dr. David Henry on behalf of the international group, we reported a 52-week update of the open-label phase of the study of Roxadostat in anemia in primary MDS patients that determined the starting dose of the ongoing double-blind study. In this open-label phase, 24 patients were recruited, and we used three sequential dose cohorts, 1.5, 2.0, and 2.5 milligram per kilogram, and as mentioned, this is an oral agent given three times per week, which makes it very comfortable. Eligible patients were patients with very low, low risk, and intermediate risk according to the IPSSR classifications, obviously low blast, whose hemoglobin was below 10. They had to have low transfusion burden, which is one to four red blood cell units in eight weeks, no more than that. Also, endogenous EPO level, which was lower than 400 units, and no DEL5Q. Erythropoietin could be given to these patients, but practically most of these patients were patients who were erythropoietin resistant. Red blood cell transfusion was allowed for institutional criteria, so patients could receive transfusions as needed, and roxadostat doses were titrated every eight weeks, and the, the dose was changed accordingly. The primary endpoint in this study was transfusion independence for about 56 days or more during the first 28 treatment weeks, and the follow-up lasted 52 weeks. So those of you who listened to the previous presentation, the primary endpoint was similar to the medalist in the Luspatercept trial. Secondary endpoints were safety, and we also did subgroup analysis with patients with and without ring sideroblast and patients below with EPO level below 200 as opposed to above 200. The results in the open label phase in this 24 transfusion dependent low risk MDS patients were 38%, nine patients achieved transfusion independence, which lasted at least 56 consecutive days within the first 28 weeks and then 52 weeks. Most of these patients, 80% of them, achieved the erythroid response in the dose of 2.5 milligram per kilogram, the highest dose. The duration was 180 days. 
Four patients, which is about 17%, remained transfusion-free for more than 20 weeks. The subgroup analysis showed that the better response was with patients with ring sideroblast, 54% as opposed to 23%, and the response was slightly better in patients with erythropoietin level below 200 compared with the above 200, which was obviously not a surprise. Safety was as expected with adverse effect, which was basically non-fatal and tolerable and manageable, and no AML transformation was reported. In conclusion, in the, this 52-week update, Roxadostat, the highest dose, 2.5 milligram per kilogram, orally, three times a week, was effective in low-risk MDS patients with anemia, the patients with sideroblastic anemia tended to better response, and patients with low EPO level also tended to have a better response. Now, in the ongoing 158 patient double-blind study phase, we used the 2.5 milligram per kilogram starting dose, and we are all looking forward for the results. So, we have another agent, Ruxadostat, to add to our armamentarium, still it is under investigation, still not approved, but something to look forward for the future. The next presentation for today is a paper presented in last ASH 2020 and was reported in uh, the last issue of Leukemia, January 22, the year 2021. The abstract in 2022-ASH was abstract number 653, presented by international colleagues led by Mikhail Sekeres, now in Miami. The paper is entitled Randomized Phase 2 Trial of Pevonedistat plus Azacitidine versus Azacitidine for Higher Risk MDS and CMML or Low Blast AML Patients. As a background, I will remind that azacitidine is a hypomethylating agent that has become for about a decade to be the standard number one, the first-line treatment for patients with high-risk MDS. However, the overall response rate is still about 50% or maybe even less as real-world data show us, and the duration of response is about two years on the average. So there is an urgent unmet need to improve the response rate and to prolong it. There are several ways to do it, and one of the major directions is the approach that has been called by many people pick the winner approach. And in this approach, we are combining another agent to the already existing standard treatment with azacitidine. And we have been exposed to several such trials over the last couple of years, including azacitidine and lenalidomide, azacitidine and venetoclax, rigocertib, MBG, glastegib, vorinostat, and pevonedistat, which is the topic of today. Pevonedistat is the first small molecule inhibitor of NED 
8. NED8 is natural, is neural precursor cell expressed developmentally downregulated. We call it NED8, N-E-D-D number 8, activating enzyme, which disrupts proteosomal degradation of select protein. And this agent, the NED8 inhibitor, Pevonedistat, has shown promising clinical activity and good tolerability in combination with azacitidine in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. Thus, it was likely to investigate it as first-line treatment in patients with high-risk MDS as well. In this study, led by Mikhail Sekeres and international colleagues, we, they, tested, they tested the combination of azacitidine and pevonedestat compared with azacitidine alone, and the study was entitled P2001. In total, 120 patients with high-risk MDS and CMML were randomized one-to-one to receive as first-line treatment AZA only or the combination of AZA and pevonedistat. The dose of pevonedistat was 20 mg per meter square intravenously on the days 1, 3, and 5 of each cycle, and each cycle lasted 28 days. Azacitidine was given according to the well-known standard protocol, 75 mg per meter square IV or subcutan for seven days every 28 days. In total, they had 58 patients who received the combination and 62 patients received Aza alone. Treatment was continued until an unacceptable toxicity relapse, transformation to acute leukemia, or progressive disease. The study was powered for event 3 survival, EFS, which was defined as the time from randomization to death or transformation to acute leukemia, whichever came first. Now for the results. Patients with high-risk MDS received a median of 13.5 cycles of treatment in the combination arm as opposed to only 10 cycles in the azaelone arm. The EFS, the event-free survival, was longer in the combination of PEVO and AZA as opposed to AZA only, with a median of 20.2 versus 15 months with a hazard risk of 0.54. The median overall survival was 24 months as opposed to 19 months, and the hazard ratio here was 0.70 in favor of the combination. The overall response rate was also higher, 79% for the combination versus only 57% in the other group only. Complete remission rate was 52% compared with 27% in the ASA-only group, and the median du duration of response, which included both CR and PR, was longer, 35 months as opposed to 13 months in the combination as opposed to the ASA-only respectively. Also, more patients in the combination became transfusion independent, 69% compared with 47% in AZA only. And the median time to 
acute leukemic transformation in those who transformed was also longer, 12.2 months compared with six months in the ASA-only group. Overall, the combination had also comparable safety profile in the combination compared with ASA-only. So clinical activity was observed in the, with the combination also in the P53 mutation and several others risk factors, cytogenetics and others. In conclusion, we can say that patients with high-risk MDS, when they receive the combination of pevonedistat and azacitidine, benefited from longer event-free survival, higher complete remission rate, and longer survival and longer response compared with other only. This finding was also associated with less transformation to acute leukemia, and the safety profile of both groups were similar. Clinical activity was observed with no more side effects as mentioned. This study was also presented by Lionel Adas from France in the last ASCO 2020, and now the results serve for the ongoing phase 3 trial, the P2001, which personal disclosure I am participating as a PI as well. In summary, we have proven or they have shown that the combination of Pevonedistat and ASA probably moves the field further to patients with high-risk MDS. And yes, we should consider adding such agents to these patients once it is approved. With this, we are ending the presentations for today. You have been listening to the MDS Foundation Professional Report, episode number two, March 2021. And please come again for the next episode. Bye.